please open to Matthew chapter 25. Now, for those that are guests with us, we've been walking through the parables of Jesus for the last couple of months, and this morning, we're going to look at what is Jesus' last parable in the Gospel of Matthew um, this Resurrection Sunday. So, we'll, we'll be looking at the last parable in Matthew 25 before Jesus is arrested and crucified on our behalf. Now, as you come to Matthew 24 and 25, what is interesting in this section of Scripture is that Jesus gives five discourses on judgment. He gives five different, basically, teachings on judgment. Now, the purpose of those five discourses isn't simply to tell us about coming judgment, but to actually encourage His disciples to persevere. Jesus wants his disciples to know what's ahead so that they can faithfully persevere in light of this. Again, remember, Jesus is about to be crucified. Jesus has warned them repeatedly. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the chief scribes and the Pharisees. They're going to do to him whatever they want. They will strike the shepherd, and then the sheep will be scattered. Jesus tells them, if they persecuted me as the master... They will also persecute you as his disciples. So during Passion Week, this whole week has been Holy Week or Passion Week, Jesus spends his time instructing his disciples with what they need to persevere. Now again, this is going to be the final discourse before Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, before he heads to Gethsemane where he will be arrested, tried, flogged, crucified, and buried. But as we're here this morning, we know that's not the end of Jesus' story. You see, this is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. We are here today because he's been, he's been raised from the dead according to his own word and his own power. Now, at this moment, he's ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and now we await his glorious return, and our parable this morning is particularly about that. My title this morning is A Parable of Jesus' Return. So Jesus, this is the point, is preparing his disciples for the future and encouraging them to persevere, live for Jesus, live for his kingdom until he returns. So here we are, Matthew chapter 25, look at verses 31 through 46 says there, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer him, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to, the, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now before we dive into this parable, I want to give you a couple of things that we need to keep in mind, okay? First, a few reminders. We have to remember, as we've studied through the parables, that parables are limited analogies. They're limited. What I mean by that is, Jesus never intended for us to build entire theologies or doctrines out of a single parable. That's not Jesus' point. So, I have to be careful, and we must be careful, to limit our application of this text to be in line with the purpose of the parable or Jesus' intention. And importantly here, and I'm very grateful, Jesus provides his own explanation of the parable. So we have to hear what Jesus says about that. So this parable then is a picture. It's allowing us to see a picture of Christ's return and the coming judgment. Jesus is saying that He will return, and judgment will be, his return and his judgment will be like this. All right? It's a picture. Now, a picture gives us a sense of the reality that's coming. Like if you have a picture of your wife or a family member, that gives you a sense of the reality, but the reality is always greater. Okay? So that's my point as we look at this as a limited analogy or a limited picture. This parable doesn't say everything about Christ's coming in judgment, but it does say some things very clearly. And my goal today is to help us draw out those main truths and have a limited application of them, okay? Now, for the Christian, we're going to look at this particularly in light of Christ's resurrection. Now, why is that important? Well, it means everything. For the Christian, hear me, if you're a Christian, the resurrection is the starting point of everything. It's the starting point of our understanding of who Jesus is and of the truth claims he makes. So, in light of that, if the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection is not true, then Jesus is a fraud and he's a fake. So it doesn't matter what he says. But if the resurrection is true and he is the risen and reigning Lord of all creation, then we have to pay attention to what he says. Because what he says is true. So keep that in mind as we look at this text today. So I'm going to move through it quickly. That's where you all laugh. You're like, you say that every week. It's just not true. All right? So here we go. I'm going to give you four points. Number one, this text teaches us, this parable teaches us first, that Jesus will come again in glory. Look at how Jesus begins the text in verse 31. He says, when, not if, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now, if you were wondering, Jesus is the Son of Man. 
Jesus has repeatedly used this term throughout his ministry and in the Gospels in reference to himself. Now this title has a, this is a title that has large messianic implications and attachments. It, the most famous usage of Son of Man in the Old Testament is from Daniel 7. Now in Daniel 7, he is a vision of the future, a vision of a coming ruler, and it says there this, I saw in the night visions, so Daniel's having a vision, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's, that's another title for God sitting on the throne, God the Father, and he says, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Okay, so this is a king. This Son of Man is a coming king and a ruler. And it says there, it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. That's the picture that Jesus calls upon when he relays this parable in Matthew 25. Jesus takes these very words from Daniel in the very next chapter, Matthew 26. So just look over in Matthew 26 at verses 63 and 64. When Jesus is on, is on trial before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asks him the most important question he ever asked Jesus, and he says this in verse 63, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus takes this, this from Daniel 7 and says, this is who I am. And by the way, this was blasphemy, and this is what caused Jesus to be crucified, that he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, who is the King, promised to come in Daniel 7. Now my point here, when you read Matthew 25, verse 31, when Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, what you have to understand is that absolutely implies that the Son of Man has already come, that he is right there in front of these disciples as Jesus. He is right there in front of them at that very moment, only in disguise. You see, all of those around Jesus, what do they think about him? Well, they think of him as a weak, lowly peasant, Galilean farmer. Some of them, at best, he's a teacher or a rabbi or a good example. Only those who recognize him by faith understand the messianic implications. So, Jesus says here that there's coming a day when he will return in his full glory. That he will come and all of the world will see him as he truly is. Jesus will come again assuredly, as assuredly as he rose and as assuredly as he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus will come again on the clouds gloriously on that day. That's what Jesus says. There's coming a day when Jesus will come again. Point two. Jesus teaches us here, secondly, that Jesus will also, on that day when he comes, he will sit on his glorious throne. Look at the end of verse 31. 
it says, then he will sit on his glorious throne. On that day, on that day, Jesus says in this parable, on that day, when the resurrected and ascended Christ returns, he will come to sit on his throne. He won't be a peasant Galilean carpenter. He will come to sit on his throne as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is coming to fulfill every messianic promise made throughout the Old Testament, particularly those to King David. All of those promises will be fulfilled on that day and Jesus will sit on the throne and rule all the nations. He will be coming in glory and splendor, in beauty and in holiness, and he will sit on a throne of beauty and glory and splendor and holiness. And he will be worshipped forever on that day for who he is as the centerpiece of heaven. Now, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Revelation chapter 5. Turn to Revelation chapter 5, where you get to see a picture of this truth opened up for us as John receives a revelation of what that day will look like when Jesus returns in his glory and sits on his glorious throne. Look at Revelation chapter 5. I'll begin there in verse 6. Look at this scene that unfolds before John in Revelation 5 beginning in verse 6. As Jesus sits on his throne, he says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Same picture from Daniel chapter 7. And he says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Listen to what they sing to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. He says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And look what happens. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. On that day when Jesus returns in his glory and sits on his glorious throne, he will be worshipped forever as the centerpiece of heaven, as the lamb who was slain. Worthy of all praise and glory. Jesus is the king. He will return in glory. He will sit on his glorious throne. And number three, and Jesus will gather and judge the nations. Look at, the, look at verse 32. He says, and before him will be gathered the nations... And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Notice the point here. 
Jesus will come again and sit in glory on his throne as king, but he's also coming as judge. That is important. I want you to notice just a few quick things here. A few quick things here about this text. Notice several things. First, notice that the nations will be gathered before him. The nations will be gathered before Jesus for judgment. All judgment has been entrusted to Jesus, the Son. He will execute it. He makes this same claim in John 5, where he says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. All the nations will be gathered before Jesus. There is one person with whom we must all give an account, and his name is Jesus. You will not appear before God the Father in judgment. You will appear before Christ the Son, Jesus. Notice second, Jesus says that this judgment before him will be universal. He says he will gather all the nations before him, not just some. There will be no nation or group of people that are exempt. There are no exceptions. There will be no escape. There will be none excused from this picture. Jesus is a universal king, and therefore his jurisdiction and judgment is universal. But third, there's something else you have to know. Not only is it universal in that all the nations will be there, but it's also individual. Notice what it says. There will be universal, though there's universal judgment, there will not be universal salvation. Everyone will either be, either be sorted to the right or to the left. Each individual from the nations will be separated out. Now listen, I know, I know that's highly offensive to our hyper-pluralistic world where everybody says everybody's okay all the time and there actually nobody will be judged. But Jesus says all the nations will be judged and each individual will be sorted to the right or to the left. That's what Jesus says. Lastly, this judgment will be impartial. It will be fair. It will be just. There will be no favoritism. There will be no bribes. There will be no cutting corners. There will be no corruption. There will be no pulling strings. And there will be no backdoor deals. You must appear before Jesus. Now listen, we live in a world that prizes freedom and hates judgment. I think that's a fair assessment of the world we live in. We live in a hyper-individualistic world where we prize our individual freedom, where we can do what we want. And let me just say... I'm an old school liberal. Live and let live. You do what you want. You do you. That's fine. But listen to what Jesus says. You might be able to live however you want, however you choose, and whichever way you deem right, but you are not the final judge of your own decisions. I am not the final judge of what I deem to be right or wrong. Jesus is. You must appear before him. We will all be called to account and we will all be sorted to the right or to the left. Now again, let me repeat my opening premise. If the resurrection is not true, then none of this matters. But if the resurrection is true, then we have to make preparations to meet Jesus. Because the Bible says it is appointed for a man once to die and after this the judgment. And Jesus says we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So Jesus will gather and judge the nations, and fourth, and finally, from the rest of our text, we gather this truth. 
Jesus will judge based on your relationship to Him. Everything will come down to your relationship with Jesus. Look at verses 33 through 46. He says there the explanation of his parable of the sheep and the goats. He says he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then Jesus gives a reason. I was hungry, I was sick, I was naked, I was in prison, and you ministered to me. And those that were there said, Jesus, when did we do that? We had no idea we did that. And Jesus said, when you did this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then Jesus says to those on his left, he says, you did not. When you saw me, you did. When you saw me naked and sick and in prison and all the others, you failed to minister to me. And they said, Jesus, when did we not, when did we see you? We never saw you. And Jesus said, when you failed to do this to the least of my brothers, you did not do it to me. Therefore, depart and go into eternal punishment. Now, let me just pause here for a minute and kind of walk through the tension of this text. You should feel tension here. You should feel some real uneasiness here. Jesus intends for us to be uncomfortable here. Parables are meant to wake us up. They're meant to break into our reality and show us the world as it is. So Jesus tells stories that are hard and difficult because they shake us out of our spiritual despondency, our spiritual complacency. And so Jesus is meaning to make us uncomfortable. Now let me just go back and say, those that are more theologically liberal and tolerant are very uncomfortable with a Jesus who will absolutely bring eternal judgment on others. It makes them very uncomfortable. But the Bible says that's what's going to happen. But on the other side of that coin, there are those that are more conservative and gospel-centered, and they're terrified whenever the Bible talks about judgment by works. You don't want to stand before Jesus and give an account for your works, do you? You don't want to stand and have to have everything laid bare before the king who knows all that we've ever said or done or thought. So that terrifies those on the other side of the spectrum. And what Jesus does is he makes everybody uncomfortable. Which if you read the Gospels, that's exactly what he does. He makes everybody uncomfortable. That's what Jesus does all the time. And so what happens is people tend to shy away from any text in the Bible that would indicate that there is salvation or judgment by works. But Jesus isn't afraid to make us uncomfortable. Listen to what he says earlier in Matthew. He says this, Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he's done. That doesn't sound awesome. And then listen to Revelation chapter 20. Make it even harder. It says there, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the, ju- and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Are you uncomfortable yet? I am too. 
Very uncomfortable. Now, here's my point. That judgment by works is directly connected to the relationship one has with Jesus. The issues throughout this, the issue throughout this parable is the relationship that a person has to Jesus and his Father. Look there at verse 34 very carefully. It says, Come, to these are to the ones on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been calling everyone to repentance and faith in him as the Son of God. That's what Jesus has been preaching all throughout the Gospels. He's told them to be reconciled to the Father through him. Jesus has made the claim that if you have a relationship with him, then you also have a relationship with the Father. So those that are blessed by the Father are those in relationship with Jesus. And because of that relationship, notice how careful Jesus is, because of that relationship with Jesus, they will receive an inheritance as sons and daughters. Now listen, we receive an inheritance based on relationship, not based on works. Because you're a child, because you're a son or a daughter, you receive an inheritance. Now, the heart of Christianity is a relationship with Jesus as Lord. That's where you say amen. The heart of Christianity is a relationship with Jesus as Lord. Now, here's the point. As evidenced by repentance and faith. You only have a relationship with Jesus if it is evidenced by repentance and faith. So in that sense, that, and sorry, so that is the most important part of this. That repentance and faith involves loving others sacrificially in honor of Jesus. That's Jesus' point. That if you have a relationship with Jesus and with the Father through Him, by repentance and faith, that repentance and faith is going to show up in your life in a certain way. It's going to show up in sacrificially loving others in honor of Christ. It's the difference between these words. For, F-O-R, for, and the, diff, and the words as a result. Let me, say, let me explain it. We love and serve others as a result of our relationship with Jesus. As a result of it. The relationship with Jesus came first. And out of that relationship, love was poured into our hearts that flows towards other people. It is, we do not have a relationship, in, we do not serve others, love and serve others, in order to have a relationship with Jesus. One is salvation by grace through faith, the other is salvation by works. So in that sense, what Jesus is saying is all works done outside of him are useless. All works done outside of Jesus are useful, useless. He makes that same point in John 3. Now, we all know John 3.16, right? We love John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But we're not as familiar with the few verses after that. Listen to what Jesus says after John 3.16, that if you have a relationship with Jesus by faith, this is what happens, verses 17 through 21. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. They're not condemned. They don't have to fear judgment. He says, but whoever does not believe 
is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be opposed. But here it is, verse 21, so important. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So those that are in Jesus carry out their works in God, in Jesus, out of the relationship they have with him. Jesus says the same thing over in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will produce fruit. Why? Because apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Now, this is my conclusion. Let me wrap this up. There is no surprise in Jesus' parable here that judgment is coming. Every Jew listening to Jesus, every disciple listening to Jesus, would have agreed and believed that part of it. The only surprise of this text is that the compassion shown to the least of these was given with no regard for the reward. Do you notice that? That those in the parable, they say to Jesus, we never saw you, we never ministered to you in need, we, what are you talking about Jesus? Which meant they served others out of compassion without any regard for being rewarded for it. It actually, all it did, they had no idea that they were serving King Jesus as they served his lowly brothers and sisters. What they were doing is this. They were simply living like Jesus lived. They were simply filled with compassion and mercy as Jesus had been filled with compassion and mercy. So they were living out of the identity Jesus had given them. They were just doing what Jesus did. They didn't care about the reward. They cared about living like Jesus lived. One commentator said it this way. The righteous will inherit the kingdom, not because of the compassionate works that they have done, but because their righteousness comes from their transformed hearts in response to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom, as evidenced by their compassion for the least of these. In caring for those in need, the righteous discover that their acts of compassion for the needy are the same as if done for Jesus himself. Now when I serve others in Jesus' name, I am serving Jesus. The reason for those that are condemned is that they are guilty of sins of omission. That is, they have refused to show compassion to the least of these, which is the same as if they have failed to care themselves for Jesus. Given the evident unrighteousness of their hearts, they are condemned to eternal punishment. Now let me say, let me go back to my main point here. On that day when Jesus sits on his glorious throne and he judges the nations and he sorts us to the left or to the right, we will be judged based on our relationship with him. Which means that for us, following Jesus cannot be reduced. Hear me, this is a very important point for us today. Following Jesus cannot be reduced to a religious recital of doctrine. It cannot be reduced to simply reciting some dogma. It cannot be reduced to affiliation with religious institutions or people. Well, I'm a part of that group or I'm out of that church or whatever. 
It can only be done. Our relationship with Jesus is primarily about this. Our relationship with Jesus isn't about dogma or religious affiliation. It is primarily about a heart of love for King Jesus that overflows into a love for those made in His image. Loving God and loving people. But it comes first by being in a relationship with Jesus. Now hear, hear me. There's coming a day of universal judgment for the nations. That day's coming. But in the meantime, what Jesus does is He sends His disciples with the gospel to all the nations. You see... Because the gospel come, with the gospel comes a universal invitation to receive Christ and enter in a rela- into a relationship with the Father through Him. So, on that day, if you have a relationship with Jesus, on that day when you stand before Him, you won't have to be judged on the basis of your works and righteousness. That's good news, but on the basis of His. Because at the cross, he took your sin and your punishment in your place so that his works and righteousness could be yours. So on that day, when everyone is judged by their works, and they will be, those that are in Jesus will be judged by his. So there's coming a day of judgment by works. I'm just grateful that it won't be by mine. It'll be by Jesus. So on that day, you will either stand in the righteousness of Christ by faith, or you'll stand on your own. And on that day, that will be a terrifying thing. So, the glorious good news of the gospel is that there is a universal invitation that anyone who repents of their sins will be welcomed into Christ's family. They will be welcomed into His people. And I close with what I've stated already several times. This all comes down to the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. None of this matters. But if the resurrection is true, then everything Jesus says matters, and we better make preparations to see him. I'm going to pray with us, and then we'll have a brief time of invitation. Father, I ask that your word today has been clearly spoken. And Father, I I know that that your word makes me incredibly uncomfortable in every which way. It shows me who I am in so many ways. It reflects the mirror back to my heart to see my brokenness and my sin And Lord, at the same time, it reflects Jesus. It shows me His grace and His goodness and His glory. And Father, on that day that we all stand before Him, Father, I pray that I would be found in Him, clothed in a righteousness that's not my own, but the righteousness that comes by faith in His name. So Father, speak now. We pray this in Christ's name.